0: What's up, everybody? Nate Lurie back with more of We're the Inspiration. With some dark humor and brutal honesty, we're exploring the absurdity and normalcy of living with disabilities. Stories are told on this show, and everyone's is different. One by one, we're going to tell as many as we can, while bringing you the most entertaining podcast about disabilities you'll ever hear. This week's show might be a little different from the norm. I have with me someone who I've worked with and is a parent, of a disabled son and that's not different from the norm but at the risk of bearing the lead his son is no longer with us so i'm sort of setting this up to be a tribute to someone that i never knew but dave barnhart thank you for being the inspiration for this week's episode
1: Well, oh, hey nate thank you appreciate it very much how you doing i'm doing fine i'm doing fine so yeah you're right i actually have three sons And my oldest, Michael, has Down syndrome. I did not know
0: that, actually.
1: Yeah, yeah, he he does. And Michael's 30. My middle son, Andrew, is 28. He's a PhD scholar right now over in Belgium. And my youngest son, Adam, who passed away in January of 2020, he had muscular dystrophy and also some issues with uh, lung condition due to the muscular dystrophy, so that's my team that's my pack so to speak
0: see my first question because i didn't know adam so my first question was what his disability was and you kind of already answered that
1: he had a uh, type 2 muscle fiber disproportion and it falls under an umbrella of muscular dystrophy but it's one of those things where it was very hard for any of the doctors that we went to to define, we went down to Johns Hopkins and he was literally in the MDA clinic from when he was a very young man, a little boy and all the way up into his teens. The interesting thing was that he had demonstrated muscular dystrophy in some ways, other ways he did not. It was always a mystery as to what was the actual true form of muscular dystrophy had and they really weren't able to identify it. The Best thing, I guess, in those terms is that it was not Deschamps. So that was a good thing, Mm -hmm. but it still took its toll. But he is the strongest individual that I know. Yeah. I've had plenty of folks say, wow, you know, you're gotta be a super strong dad to do what you do and all like that. And I've always said that all I am is the spotter because he's the one who always had to lift the weight every day. So I was just standing there at the bar Kind of spotting it for him while he just pushed that weight up every day, day in and day out. And really did so without any kind of complaint.
0: See, as someone with a disability myself, I probably didn't look at that situation the way most people would. Mm-hmm. My reaction actually to hearing that you had, you have two disabled sons, but Even hearing that you had one, personally, I felt bad in a way not knowing that Adam existed before he died. Mm. Does that make sense? No,
1: I do. I understand. You know, while our family is, we were kind of all growing up together and, you know, how we went along the journey, we never really put that out there as the lead. Right. You know, it was, do you have kids? Like, yeah, I've got three sons. Now it would become, (laughs) become blatantly apparent when you'd show up at a picnic or something like that, but it was never the headline. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wouldn't want that. So
0: I hate the way I found out about Adam, because like I said, I didn't know he existed until you had Uh posted that he passed away in a way. Once I knew that I sort of understood you as someone who, like I said, as someone with a disability myself, you must have ultimately an understanding of just everyone with disabilities to an extent. Like, even though you probably don't know me very well, because we only say hi once in a while at work. Uh Whereas someone who doesn't know me at all would like assume I need help with something or, you know, sure. I would believe you wouldn't assume those things about people with disabilities.
1: No, I would not. It's one of those things where all the time that, and we were involved and still are involved in a lot of different groups and organizations and, recreational outlets and things like that and even going through school where their school support services were, were readily available you could take what people would say or what folks would say it's like boy you got it really rough it's really difficult it's got to be hard because you have two sons with disabilities and all like that and I'm like no really not because Michael is like I said he has down syndrome but he's a very self-reliant self-sufficient individual Adam was not someone to complain. He adapted, modified, and overcame a lot of different hurdles. And he did so on his own. We helped as best we could. But there are so many other people out there who are dealing with a lot of different situations and issues that have far greater complexity, so much more going on. And they've had to make some adaptations as well, either the parents or the individual themselves or loved ones or whoever is helping them. And everybody's story is different. There is no dividing line when it comes to the stories that people have, whether you have a disability or not. Everybody's dealing with something one way or another. And I've always said, like it was maybe a little rough and tumble. But our guys, they had a lot of support, love around them. And I'm sure other folks are dealing with situations too. You can't make an assumption. That's not a fair thing to do.
0: Right. It's interesting to me, of course, I just found out about Michael tonight, but it's interesting to me that you have, well, you have three sons, but you have two of them a few years apart with distinctly different disabilities. Yes. So... As a parent, did Michael's disability sort of prepare you better for Adam's?
1: It's very different in a couple of instances. So Michael was born in 1990, and it was one of those things where, you know, Down syndrome presents itself pretty clearly. Right. And what was interesting is that we actually, uh, there were some reticence on behalf of a pediatrician who was trying to care for Michael in his early days, who just didn't want to tell us the bad news. Mm. Like, what do you mean you want to take uh, and do a a karyotype on his blood work and all like that? And at the time, Michael's mom was taking some genetics classes. And she said, are you looking for Down syndrome? And the doctor basically said, well, we're just going to check things out. Like, okay, that sounds a little off. So we went to another pediatrician, brought Michael in as an infant and the doctor looks down and he says, uh, he has Down syndrome. I'm like, are you sure? He goes, of course I'm sure. And he pointed out four or five physical things that, that were like clear markers. And I'm like, well, this other doctor is asking for these other tests. And he goes, I don't need them. I can tell you this right now. So it was an early presentation that we knew about Mike's disability. And we worked our way through that. 1992, Andy's born. Andrew was born with a cleft lip and palate. And that was something where Andrew is presented and he's got a cleft lip and palate and they're like, okay, well, look, they're doing wonderful things and we can make sure that he gets great care and it'll all work out. Andy had to go through a series of surgeries and the final surgery for him was when he turned 18 and he had to deal with that particular physical anomaly for a period of time through his life. And then 95, Adam is born. Adam just seemed when he was born early on, he just needed to be swaddled very tightly because he was kind of shaking. And he actually was walking. It took him longer to walk, but he was walking for the first few years of his life. And then things just kind of went, there are big changes going on. So we were going to see specialists and folks like that. And they said, well, you need to go, to the mda clinic down at johns hopkins because we think there might be some situation there and he had a muscle biopsy and it confirmed the type of muscular dystrophy that he had mm-hmm. so that is an exceptionally long answer to your question of no <laughs> uh, no that's okay uh, long because... long answers are accepted here <laughs> because they are very different and all diverged and and the only thing that anybody ever said to us was, you know, three boys, three different situations, you know, you should go buy yourself a lot of ticket and, you know, <laughs> see if you can get lucky that way too. But so each situation presents itself differently. And again, it's the very same thing as when you walk into any room, everyone's situation is different. You can peel back uh, your own layers to recognize those differences and accept them and understand that there's strengths in everyone and there are are opportunities for improvement in everyone too.
0: Now I'm not someone that knows a lot about muscular dystrophy, but you said that there were some examples of things that Adam had about him physically that said he didn't have it.
1: His traits were such that he was able to, while he was a younger man, a younger boy, he was able to stand Mm -hmm. and walk He didn't really run a great deal, Mm. but he did stand and walk about the house. And then it became clear that his muscles were not developing as they should. So there are two types of muscle fibers. There's a long muscle fiber and there's a short one. The longer one is meant for endurance. The shorter one is meant for power, speed, things like that. Right. So he had a disproportionate in the type two muscle fiber. And that was the one I believe is the short one for the power and the speed. So he was able to stand and there were times when he would stand on one foot and then take the other foot and raise it up and push the bottom of his foot against his knee, literally locking it in place. So he looked a bit like a flamingo. Sounds
0: like a yoga pose.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And that's how he would balance himself. Interesting. And that just mystified the doctors at Johns Hopkins. But they also said that's an adaptation that he developed for himself. And unfortunately, too, some spinal curvature things set in on him. So he became chair bound. He could transfer and, and take a few steps and move about a room if he wanted to. But mostly if we're going to be going anywhere, we're going to be using a chair. Getting where we wanted to go. When he got a little bit older, we were able to use scooters inside the house. He had a power wheelchair, but there are times when a large power wheelchair will put an enormous hole in a wall. It's just a lot safer to use a small scooter, like the ones you see at Walmart, but without the big giant basket on the front of it. Adam was a remarkable driver, he could maneuver his scooters. With deft and speed, he would be a true stunt car driver if he were allowed to, because <laughs> he can just—he he had such delicate touch, and that was a remarkable thing. Folks would be like, "I'll hop on and I'll move the scooter out of the way for you," and it would start to careen all over the room, and they're like, "I don't know what I'm doing. I'm gonna crash it into the wall." And but Adam would be able to step over, hit the gas, navigate through the house, and never touch a thing. And get to from his point A to his point B, and I'm not a warrior in the world.
0: I don't think there's a day that goes by that I don't hit at least one thing in a day <laughs> with my chair. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> I haven't had any other parents of kids with disabilities on the show yet, but I did have a parent who has a disability of kids that don't. And the question for him was, how do you teach your kids about things that you can't do, right? The question for you or anybody else, I think, with kids with disabilities is, how do you teach them, especially when you have more than one, how do you teach them to be more self-reliant?
1: I believe you recognize their interest and willingness to accept that self-reliance. It's like with anything else. You start out with a small responsibility and then it grows and grows and grows and grows. Take away the parentheses of, but you've got a disability. Okay, Michael, make your bed. Adam, brush your teeth. Adam, put your bowl in the sink. Michael, get your coat on. Let's get ready to go. You're going to go ahead and teach your kids their responsibilities and their self-reliance the same way you would anybody else. Now, obviously you do understand that there will be some limitations. I'm not going to ask Adam to carry the laundry basket down the stairs to the washing machine, (laughs) but Michael, as a young man learned how to mow the grass. Hmm. And so his greatest love is mowing grass. Really? So, oh yeah, he loves it. And it's his responsibility to bring his lawnmower out. And under supervision, he'll put the gas in the mower and then he'll get it started. And then he'll mow the pattern that he knows for the yard. And he's really good at it. And he likes it. It's one of those things that just makes him exceptionally happy. He's been caught several times dancing while mowing the grass. (laughs) And I don't believe there are too many folks out there who would be dancing while they're mowing the grass. Like I can't that, think of anyone, but... Yeah, but that's him. But that's a responsibility. That's one of his jobs. And, you know, don't ever take that job away from him because that's what he really enjoys doing. For Adam, Adam enjoyed music. He enjoyed doing some creative art, you know. So it, you just kind of open up the possibilities and see which one that, that they drift towards and encourage it. It's just like it's like you would for anybody else. Right. Right. So
0: the key for you might have been to treat them exactly like you would treat Andrew, who you would know wouldn't have those limitations. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that was most fair to Andrew and most fair to Mike and Adam. You know, Andrew's situation was such that he's actually spoken about this at a couple of conferences in the past. Um, And
0: yeah, by the way, Andrew, there was a chance Andrew was going to be on this too. He'll have his own episode.
1: So (laughs) if if he wants it. Yeah. Oh, yes, absolutely. I I feel confident that he will. Okay. He's spoken about being that sibling to an individual with disabilities, but then his situation is such that he was sandwiched in between two brothers. I mean, he loves them dearly. I have no hesitation in saying that. But I know that during the times when you're growing up and you're going to middle school or high school or whatever, it had to be a tough putt. Couldn't have been easy is that your brother yeah that's my brother is that your brother yes that's my brother adam too and he championed for them and he still does today andrew kind of persevered through an awful lot and it made him even stronger in his resolve for doing the things that he wants to do right so
0: for the record i have an older brother not disabled and people ask me if i'm gonna have members of my family on the show truth is the answer to that is no because the only thing that they'd be able to do in the context of this show is tell stories about me and not <laughs> not that I'm worried about being embarrassed by that, but uh-huh. like I don't want that sort of vanity project podcast gotcha, so
1: that's a good thing, yeah,
0: that's good so when you were talking about Michael Moe in the yard, you mentioned that he appreciated the patterns of it.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Now, is that a good way to teach someone with Down syndrome a lot of things, is just have them recognize patterns?
1: Well, for Mike, it is. Uh, I mean, there are so many different variants of Down syndrome, too. Right. And everyone learns differently there, because depending upon the degree of intellectual disability, there are certain things that they will learn very, very quickly, others that they would not. It just happens that he would follow after me while I was mowing the grass when he was just a little guy. And he understood you go so far one way, turn around and go so far the other way and just keep going back and forth. Mm -hmm. And he got into that and it works for him. He's an outside guy. He loves being outside. And he also has several jobs in the community as a volunteer. Mm -hmm. And, you know, with COVID, it really kind of hampered that
0: it hampered a lot of jobs
1: <laughs> yeah yeah but i mean he still goes and volunteers at the restore for habitat of humanity here in hagerstown he was volunteering at a couple of libraries and a volunteer at a local fire department where we would go in and basically you know, just kind of straighten things up put things back help out so in the meantime now he's been helping out with micah's backpacks and going to a couple of churches and helping to fill Micah's backpacks for kids who need lunches for times when the school system can't provide them. So that's, nice. that's what he does. And even Adam for a period of time was getting some volunteer work in too. And this is all under the supervision of some really great care providers. Both Michael and Adam were in self-directed programs through the state of Maryland. And we really felt that the self-directed programs were the way to go versus going to a specific location and they're going to be there for a day-long program. And it suited their personalities better. So for a while, Adam was going over to a local movie theater. And with his power wheelchair, he was taking a very large broom and just sweeping the whole place. He held onto the broom, (laughs) navigated the power chair and just would clean up really well. And the neat thing is that wherever these guys go, because of their willingness to work and enthusiasm for being a part of that organization or group or company, their enthusiasm is kind of infectious. And other folks who are volunteering there look forward to seeing them enjoy their routine, how important it is for them to be active, be working. And that's where the true blurring of the inclusion line can begin. I think that's probably one of the most important things
0: that they do. Was inclusion more of a problem when they were younger?
1: Oh, yeah. This was in the early 90s and mid 90s. No Child Left Behind was just underway. And you're trying to make sure that they're being part of the classrooms and part of all the activities and opportunities And we would have IEP meetings that would last hours with members of the school board and school system and the local classroom teacher and the administrators. We had these marathon sessions because it was really important to get it right and to talk about what are the other opportunities that you can do. Adam got to participate in orchestra when he was in high school, but he played a percussion component. His was the triangle. So and he participated, yeah, and he participated in a concert or two. It's just that sort of thing. You have to try and find every outlet you can, because everybody else has opportunities available to them. So, not that we gave the school system a hard time, but we made them earn their money. When it came to the IEP, um, <laughs> they were very long and they would be very intense. And so, it but it was worth it. It was necessary.
0: Ever since you said that Adam took his power chair and mopped the floor, or, you know, or pushed the broom across the floor, I'm reminded of something that was already talked about on a previous show by a wheelchair user who we kind of shared stories about the difficulty of manipulating a vacuum. But if we <laughs> if we had power chairs, that would be easier. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, well, in certain cases, it worked to his advantage. In others, those things can be a bit of a beast, but he did exceptionally well. His ability to adapt to whatever the situation was, was really remarkable. Very much so. Did he ever use a manual wheelchair? Yes, when he was younger. Okay. For a bit. His upper body strength wasn't quite matching up to that. And if you had any kind of incline, that was going to be a bit of a difficulty We started out with scooters in the schools. and uh, In the schools? Wow. Yeah. So Adam would be transported to school and he would transition over into a scooter that was at the school. He would make his way around school and then transition from there to a chair, to a desk. The fun thing was, is that he would start to basically outrun the assistants that were working with him because he would adjust the speed on it. And then hit the gas and just kind of <laughs> take off. So there were times when the instructional assistants were running up behind him yelling, turtle, 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 you know, turn it down, go from rabbit to turtle. He would always kind of crank it back up to rabbit and then take off.
0: I'm starting he, to think I really would have liked that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, he he and I did a, a couple of 5Ks together. and I've done um, some of those, you know, yeah. I'm no runner. I am I mean, I'm a decent, fast walker and, and I can keep a pace every now and then. But I'd be you know, walking pretty brisk and, and striding it out and jogging a little bit right beside him. And then he would just kind of look over at me and give me this come and get me kind of look. And then he just hit the gas and just pull way away from me. I mean, he would just take off on me and then I would have to run up to try and catch him. I'm like, would you slow down? And he'd slow down and let me get up beside him. And we'd go for a little bit further, and then he'd look at me again. It's like, I'll see you later. And he's, he was yo yoing me the whole way through. Well, here's the thing uh.
0: I, as someone who's done 5Ks in a wheelchair, I think you're misinterpreting it just a little bit. In a 5K, and I talked about this on the last show that I did, I used to do a lot of 5Ks, and the most fun parts of those were the downhill parts. <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah. I don't know if he did him in a manual wheelchair or a power wheelchair. I don't really know how it would work in a power wheelchair, but in a manual one, you kind of have to hold back a little bit. So yeah. you don't hit anybody yeah. and, right. you know, that kind of thing. Cause he was in his full power wheelchair, the big one. I see.
1: Uh, and you can set governors to whatever, but he's a very intelligent young man and he was able to just adjust that governor. And then, you know, he would hit the gas and, the part of it that always got to me uh, was that he would wait for me. Let me get next to him, walk with him a little bit, run with him a little bit. And then he'd just kind of look over at me and just while he's looking at me, literally while he's looking at me, he just would hit the gas and just drive away. (laughs) It's almost like a cartoon. Absolutely.
0: (laughs) This is backtracking a lot, but you had mentioned that, when Michael was born, there were doctors that tried to tell you different things about his disability.
1: I don't think the physician was emotionally prepared to share that news, mm-hmm. to step into a room and share that kind of news because it is very difficult to share. And especially I when it's your first child. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And the doctors have emotions as well, obviously, most definitely. And sometimes, those feelings can just be overwhelming. And we found a pediatrician who was very straightforward, who was very strong in his conviction to making sure Michael got the best care possible. And he held us accountable, and we held him accountable too. Um, That's fair. It was. Yeah, it was a growth opportunity for everybody, including the pediatrician that we actually ended up going to, because when we first went to see the physician, he actually said, well, your son is a mongoloid. And I'm like, really? He goes, yeah. That's what I said. Are you sure? He goes, I can tell you for sure. He showed us the physical markers that indicated Down syndrome. And he said, I don't need a blood test to tell me he's a mongoloid. So... And we kind of gathered everything up and took it all in, started looking back at family history and trying to understand you know, how did it happen and all like that. And we went for subsequent pediatric visits. And about the third visit, the doctor had mentioned again, he used the term mongol, mm-hmm. And at that point, I had just enough courage to say, I really need you to stop saying that. I don't blame you. He has Down syndrome. Now, this was an older pediatrician. He was not being untoward in any way. That was the terminology prior to the identification that it's Down syndrome. But I asked him, I said, please don't call him that anymore. His name is Michael and he has Down syndrome. And he put his hand on my shoulder and he goes, I am so sorry. And you'll never hear that from me ever again. And he never did. Growth opportunities for everybody.
0: Well, that's always good. Uh, My follow-up question to that, though, and again, long answers are great, but but my follow-up question to that would be, you were sort of given mixed messages when Michael was born. Did the same thing happen when Adam was born?
1: That was a matter of diagnosis. Okay. Trying to find out exactly what was going
0: on. Oh, that's right, because they weren't sure. Yeah.
1: So literally a couple of days after he was born, a day after he was born, We were taking him down to Johns Hopkins and mom had a C-section and she had to travel in the back of a van because we were going to get him down to Johns Hopkins as fast as we could. It was really tough. Mom had to withstand going through that C-section and then being at Johns Hopkins just a day or so after Adam was born as they were trying to figure out what was going on and There were even questions as to, did you take something or use some sort of drug or anything like that during your pregnancy? And, you know, she's answering, uh, no, no, not at all. And having to deal with that, but again, trying to get to the bottom of what was it that Adam was going to be dealing with at that point, at that point, it was just about trying to nail down a diagnosis. Mm. or just identify, okay, so this is what's going on for him. Here's how we need to treat it. Here's how he's going to move forward. It wasn't even an early indication of muscular dystrophy. It's just, again, another one of those things he had to adapt, and he did.
0: And again, you know, I have spina bifida, and to this day I probably don't know as much about it as I should Mm. for a person that has it. Right, right. (laughs) I know there's a gap in my spine somewhere. It's probably, like, lower than some, but... Like I've said before on the show, there are people with spinal bifida that can walk. And I'm not one of those people. I used to be able to move my legs, but that was taken care of by botched surgery. That's a long story. But I don't want to say I've never been unhealthy, but that's the only way I can describe it right now. As far as like, well, I had a doctor once that when I was, this was 10 years ago, I was 31. And when he asked me my age, he looks at me and he goes, you're going to make it his exact words. And this was a doctor that I'd known most of my life. Cause he operated on me when I was like five years old or something like that. So I don't know whether this is jumping ahead or not, but like, it's weird because I never thought about as a disabled person, my lifespan until that point, but I've also not really been worried about it since because he said that, you know?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
0: You had mentioned the number of volunteer jobs that Michael held before COVID and uh, Adam had as well. Is there hope that Michael will get a job that's beyond volunteer?
1: We had one. Oh, he He, Yeah, he did. He actually worked for a local grocery store a day or two a week, four to five hours a week. The problem was he receives SSI disability and all like that. Mm Mm-hmm. The Social Security Administration required that I would mail in, at the end of each month, not copies of his pay stubs, but the actual pay stubs. And what they would do is they would take whatever he had earned in his hourly wage, and they would deduct it from his SSI benefit. So in long and short is, let's say his SSI benefit was $250, and he earned $50 for the entire month. I would have to send in this paperwork. They would have to acknowledge with more paperwork mailed back to me that they were going to make this reduction in his monthly benefit. Then they would take the monthly benefit and make that reduction. So his monthly benefit would be $200 instead of 250. Then they would send me more paperwork saying, do you acknowledge that we did this? So, I mean, we went on like that for like six months and- was such a headache because you have to mail in the pay stubs themselves and then the paperwork back and forth and back and forth. We finally just said, for the five hours a week, you know, what you're getting paid, this isn't worth it. It really isn't. If you had been able to go into like a portal, scan in the things and the math is done and you're like, okay, yeah, I get it. This is what's going to happen. But they had to have the physical pay stubs. And it was just like why are we banging our heads against the wall for this? And so he went back to just being a happy volunteer and Mm. that works for him. And that works for us. And he's had wonderful experiences with working in different stores, meeting all kinds of new people, just being a part of working crews. It's been a positive experience. Even the folks at the grocery store understood why we said, you know what? He enjoys being here. This whole paperwork thing is a real pain. And we've got so many other things we want to focus on versus keeping track of paperwork at least once a month. Let's go find the happy things to do versus shuffling paper back and forth between us and the Social Security Administration. Just didn't need that headache.
0: Yeah, SSI, I don't really have any firsthand experience with it, but I know a lot of disabled people that rely on it because Uh for whatever reason they... They either can't find jobs or can't physically work or whatever. Even in radio, I make too much to qualify for SSI. It's really not all it's cracked up to be.
1: Right. It's a sustaining thing for Mike. But again, if the Social Security Administration had a different way to administer that, which I'm sure at some point they will, because imagine now with the issues that the US mail is dealing with and getting mailed through in any kind of a timely fashion, no fault of their own. It's one of those things where if you're waiting on that paperwork to come back so you know what you're going to have and then how you're going to handle the reduction and did they get it right and all like that. It's just one more thing you don't really don't want to worry about.
0: Well, this was before I really knew about Michael, but I sort of labeled this in the beginning as a tribute to Adam of sorts, even though I didn't know him. So I wonder if we could address his passing a little bit okay again i didn't know him i don't exactly know how to ask this but like did you see it coming or was no. it sudden no
1: it's very sudden yeah yeah he spiked a very severe fever on the 18th of january and he passed away on the 19th of january in 2020 what happened was that fever severely compromised his lungs his, his lung capacity which was already at you know. He slept every night with a BiPAP. Okay. So even with extra heavy duty BiPAP being provided to him, it was just such that it overwhelmed him. He bounced back from a lot of things. Bounced back from flus, bounced back from a lot of other things. This was just too much.
0: I've had probably, yeah, a number of friends, I think, that have died in similar ways from what turned out to be shunt failure. Because with spina bifida, usually you have shunts, you know. Uh, Because hydrocephalus is a thing for us. But again, I didn't know Adam. I kind of wish I did. He sounds like someone I would have gotten along with.
1: Oh, sure. (laughs) Yeah, he's very open, very uh, very accommodating, very friendly. Um, he. He had a bit of an intellectual disability as well, so his communication, his expressive communication was not as strong as his receptive and his comprehensive communication. So he was very, very sharp, but his ability to go ahead and communicate what he was thinking at times was not easy for him to deliver, but we knew what Adam was thinking, what he felt, you know, what his opinion was on certain things and what he wanted to do and how he wanted to do it. And he gave us a lot of really good examples of don't feel sorry for yourself. Don't think that you've got it so bad, Mm -hmm. so to speak. And he was incredibly tough very, very strong. He had contractures in his knees and in his ankles and in his hips. And I cannot imagine what it would be like to have that kind of physical impairment on a daily basis. I mean, my knees hurt every now and then. And it's tough for me to get up out of a chair sometimes. But that's something that he had every day, every moment, all the time. And he did not Complain. He would simply do what needed to be done, and we've kind of adopted a uh, an Adam Strong hashtag. Our family, our extended family, and our friends, and we recognized the anniversary of his passing last week very quietly. Everyone did it on their own individually, but you know, right. the one thing that he did like to do, he and Michael both, they went with me in the evenings to go shoot sports highlights for uh, the local newspaper, you know, we'd go out and I'd take a video camera and we'd shoot some highlights and then come back and I'd edit it and send it into the newspaper. And it wasn't anything more than that. But what was really great is that we would go to all these different high schools, little league, whatever it may be, whether it was football or soccer or lacrosse, volleyball, basketball, We went to the Hagerstown Suns on a regular basis. Those guys became like icons. (laughs) We could go to these gyms and the folks that ran the front door, they recognized who the guys were. Off we went. We went in, found our spot, shoot the video. We did that for, I'm going to say, close to seven years. I know that we saw hundreds and hundreds of first halves (laughs) because we would have to leave at halftime so we could get back and I could edit it in time for deadline and things like that. But they enjoyed going to the games because there was interaction. Folks would come up and say hi, you'd get fist bumps and it was really good. It was great socialization and great opportunity for them to be out and just having a night out versus another night in. And I think that's the one thing that I do miss very much. We don't have that now. Right. Right. It was actually in March of 2020 when I stopped doing the video taping, but it was late in January and Michael had asked me about going to a ball game. I really wasn't sure how we were going to do that, but we did it. It was good to do it. Just and not the same. So, no, not at all. But that's who they are. It's going to be a long, long time before I'll use the past tense. I
0: don't think I'm going to do that. In terms of Adam's communication, I know a lot of people with that same type of communication. And for the record, and this is more for the audience than it is for you, all it takes is patience to really understand that even if someone is having trouble expressing themselves for whatever reason, doesn't mean right. they're, they're unintelligent.
1: That's correct. Yeah, very much so. Yeah. You become very cognizant of communication pattern, what the goal is that they're trying to express. It's yeah. pretty clear. Yeah.
0: Pretty clear. All, all you need to do is listen. And right. it takes a little more patience than with some other people, but it's sure. it can be worth it too. Absolutely. So the last question I always ask people that are not disabled themselves on this show, what is a misconception that you had about the disabled community before you were directly involved with it?
1: Well, I think that a misconception I had was that the disabled community was literally a mass of individuals in a collective and that was their only label. And I don't like labels, but that was the only moniker or nameplate or whatever you want to put out there Mm. for that population it's almost like the things we're dealing with today with understanding how there are many different people of different color different ethnicity different cultural background everyone has a difference that makes them who they are and having that broad brush label I think is the biggest misconception that I probably had. Okay. And going into the classrooms for those IEPs, going to all the different special Olympic opportunities, just being immersed in the community, you come to find out that no, that's not a fair way to look at folks. We're not to be looking at folks, based upon ethnicity and skin color and things like that. So there's no need to be looking at folks based upon whether they use a walker, a cane, a wheelchair, a sounding board to speak, or have someone who is helping them communicate what they want to buy at the grocery store. It's the very same thing.
0: It's a great point. And there are a lot of people out there that don't realize that. And, you know, for people who are disabled, I think that there's an unspoken bond between us sometimes where like, we don't even have to speak to accept each other. You know, Uh if I see somebody else in a wheelchair or somebody like Michael with Down syndrome or whatever, sometimes I'll talk to them. Sometimes I'll just acknowledge them with like a nod of the head or whatever. We're all part of that community. You know, it's larger than people think, just because we don't have to know each other to understand each other. This was a very emotionally charged episode, which is why I said from the start, it'd be different from the norm. I didn't even know if Dave would want to do it, but he seemed pretty happy with how it turned out, and so am I. There might be a part two to this if his son Andrew ever wants to jump in. But for now, I want to thank Dave for being the inspiration for this episode, and thank you for listening. Remember that links to our Twitter, Facebook, and Discord server are going to be in the description when I put the show up. Until next week, this is Nate Lurie saying, you don't always have to do a lot to inspire others.